from the Gospel according to John. This is chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Esaias. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and and remaining upon him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Word of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come humbly before you at this time, Lord, that you would open our eyes and open our ears, Lord, that we would hear your word, Lord, and be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would be made like him by hearing your word, Lord. Father, we ask for understanding. We ask for humility in the face of this overwhelming truth, Lord, this overwhelming reality, Lord, that you have chosen through your divine and sovereign providential will, Lord, to impart upon us. Father, I ask that your son be magnified in this time this morning. In his precious and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been studying the first chapter of John. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's probably my favorite book in the Bible. It really is uh, gospel for all the elect, all the children of God. I think really even the unbeliever would stand to gain much from reading this book. But it is designed to convey to us the lordship, but also the divine nature, the godness of our Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. We encounter the light. We encounter that which we are given such that we can see. 
And then we learn of the witness, the one who saw. The Christian faith is based on witness. It's based on the witness of John. It's based on the witness of all the martyrs, all the church fathers, all the apostles, all the evangelists, everyone who has beheld the Lord witnessed and bears witness, bears testimony of what they saw. And so this first chapter is... The word, it's amazing that the word, which is, we've talked about this over many weeks, and I I feel like it's worth drilling in, which is that the word is the logos. This was a a Greek word. It first appears hundreds of years before Christ in the writings of Heraclitus. They referred to it, we would call it reason. We would call it logic. We, we We would think of it as an abstract principle. And the reason we think of it as an abstract principle or a concept is because we are for probably for worse, I would say for better, for worse, but really it's probably for the worse. Somehow we have come out of this Grecian milieu. Okay. So people say you hear about sort of a political view of the world and they will say, well, well, our tradition, our intellectual tradition comes from two cities. They'll say it comes from Athens and it comes from Greece. And when people say that it comes from Athens, what they're talking about is our logical tradition that two conflicting statements cannot both be true, that there's uniformity in nature, meaning I have a reasonable expectation that things tomorrow will be like things today. And these are principles of nature. And this is the way that the Grecians would have put it, the, the, plate, the Platonists. Um, when, we're, when you're out in the world and you're talking among the secular world, and they're appealing to things like logic and reason, they're appealing to this tradition that came out of Greek uh, philosophy. The other side is, is Jerusalem, which is what we are studying when we study the philosophy of the Jews. And what's happening here is that someone, John, who's sort of living under Roman rule, living in this Grecian Athenian milieu, is trying to convey to the Greeks in their own language that the logos, this principle of reason, this idea came down and was incarnated in the flesh, right? And he's trying to describe what that is. The word, the logos, is the light that shineth in the darkness. But the darkness comprehendeth it not. That light is the life and light of men. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, bear witness. Now we get into the bearing of witness. Okay, so there's the light, the word, the logos, the logic, the reason, the principle of reason, and it is incarnate, it is made flesh, and now we have John, six months his senior, bearing witness to that. And we've already gone through Matthew chapter 3, which is a great chapter if you want to sort of look at the ministry of John. But now we're going to see what John himself had to say. Uh, John the Baptist, what John the Baptist had to say according to John the Evangelist who's writing the Gospel of John. Okay, so these are two separate Johns, right? Because John the Baptist dies in the proceedings of the Gospel of John. So these are two separate Johns. Very common name, by the way. John is a very common name. Uh, at the time, Yoannan is how they would have uh, pronounced it in the Greek, probably. So this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied 
not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So John is saying very clearly, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah, the Meshach, who you expect to see. What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, no. And what they're asking, they're asking, because in Malachi, it's prophesied that Elijah will come back. And so they're asking, hey, are you this prophet that's supposed to come back? And he's saying, no, I'm not that prophet. Uh, in, we just learned in Mark chapter 9 during the transfiguration, Christ sort of implies that John comes in the role of the prophet. And so, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to look at Scripture as a whole and kind of understand, you know, John is, is saying, hey, I'm not the, the prophet Elias from his perspective, but in the role of God's plan, he sends John in the, uh, in the station of a prophet and thus fulfills the prophecy. He confessed and denied not, but said, I am not the Christ. Art thou that prophet? He answered, no. And said they unto them, who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So I am the one that was prophesied of, that would come and make the ways straight, make the ways clear. There's a, a smoothing of the path that John is doing. And I think one way of looking at this is he's calling people to repentance. He's sort of ginning up the populace. He's saying, hey, you need to repent from your sins. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. This is something that we often forget. When they were back then, 2000 years ago, they were saying the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. And we all are looking forward to saying, oh, the kingdom is to come. No, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now because we and this we're going to get into all this. It's we're going to get into a lot of things, just repeat ourselves many times. But there's there's Matthew 28. And uh, this is relevant for a couple of reasons. One is it mentions baptism. Another reason is we have to understand that we are in the kingdom now. Now, does that mean that all the promises of the kingdom have been completely fulfilled? No, because the kingdom is now and not yet is what the theologians would say. It's now, meaning here we are in the church age, uh, blessed with uncountable blessings, uncountable blessings of the of the age of the church. Uh, Two thousand years after Christ, the world is very different. And for all of it, like his elect here in this room, we, have, we are blessed in countless material and spiritual ways. We have knowledge of the word that they wouldn't have had 2,000 years ago. We really should look and just be grateful for the untold, uncountable blessings of the time that we live in. And we should also be looking forward. Not that Christ could come today. He could come today. But we could also come 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 years from now. And we should be thinking, what will the church be looking like if he comes 10, 20,000? It says that no one knows the day or the hour. And yet I hear so many Christians who are absolutely convinced that it will be it will be a day and an hour in their lifetime. Right. And it sort of implies to me that if everybody thinks the same thing, it'll be a day and an hour in my lifetime. But the word tells us we won't know the day or the hour. It's probably not in my lifetime. That's uh, I, like that's just the principle that I, I hold to. But what did we read in Matthew 28? All power, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is Christ, our Lord, talking. All power is given in, unto me in heaven and in earth. Right. That's all of it. Right. There's no power outside of heaven or or earth. So that's all power in the universe. All power 
in, in creation is given unto our Lord Jesus Christ. Go ye therefore. So because we are in the kingdom, because all power has been given unto him in heaven and in earth, go ye therefore, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. What is it not? It doesn't say go persuading all the nations, right? It doesn't go say converting all the nations. It doesn't say that we have the power of salvation in our hands. It just says you are obligated because I have the authority to tell you to. You are obligated to go teach everything I have commanded. That's what our Lord commands. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay, so if you are wondering, people say, oh, the Trinity, the word the Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Well, no, because, and we've talked about this before, I mean, these are kind of, we're going to talk about the same things over and over because we're just addressing reality, right? In the beginning, God created all things. He creates man, and he says, man, your job is to go name all the things that I've created, right? And that is, that's, what we, that's what I call the prelapsarian imperative. Something that's prelapsarian means it's prior to the fall. Okay, So prior to the fall, we were given a job to do, and it is to name all the things. So in our perfect state, prior to sinning, we're supposed to go and name things. Well, do you think that after the fall, after we make a mistake and we mess up and we prove ourselves incapable of following God's divine ordinances, do you think that our role, our job has fundamentally changed? No, we're still supposed to go out and name things. So when they look at this and they say, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these are the three that witness... What is that? We call that the Trinity. We call that the Trinity. And it is our, not just our job, it's our, but it's our right. It's our obligation and our duty and our responsibility, but also an honor and a privilege that we get to name things. And that man has been made for a purpose. And one of those purposes is naming things. Teaching them to observe. Okay, so what are we teaching them? Teaching them to observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. Okay, checking on time. So I'm the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Esaias. So how are we how is he making straight? He's calling people to repentance and he's baptizing, right? So when Jesus comes and he is baptized. It's clear that there's a new tradition being formed, a new uh, aspect of the covenant, which is in obedience, we follow our Lord in baptism. And in the, the book of John is going to lead us to talk about baptism a lot. I'm going to touch on it a few times. Um, I just touched on it now when we read from Matthew 28. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And he's crying in the wilderness. Okay, one thing I like to do is I like to read and I like to teach, well, what is the plain interpretation of this, right? The plain on its face interpretation is that he's in the wilderness, like literally the desert, the wild parts of the geography, right? That's very clear. We all understand that. We teach that. And then there is a layer deeper. There's the question, which is, is he in the wilderness of time? Is he in the wilderness of ages? And it's, it's true. It's prior to the resurrection, right? So he is in the wilderness of, of the ages. He is in this like moment in time, just prior to the center of history, where our Lord is put up on a cross, died, and resurrected again. That The center of history is in that resurrection, right? And our, our, the prophet John the Baptist 
is in the wilderness of history. He's in the darkness prior to the coming of our Lord. In power, which is what he said. The reason that our Lord ha- says all that great commission that we just went over, going and teaching all the nations because all of that authority has been given unto him in earth is because he's already done the job, right? He's already been on the cross. He's been resurrected. Now all authority, and he's always had all authority, but it's now the time, right? Because he told his, his disciples, you know, go out, you know, he was teaching them sort of the strategies of discipleship, the strategies of apostleship, being a messenger um, during his ministry. But he doesn't really tell them to go out and the time is now. All authority is now given unto me until after the resurrection. Now he's God, so all authority's always been given unto him. But there was this plan of history that had to be played out for the glory of God. Talking a little bit more about baptism. I think we just have so much to be excited about and thankful for. I want to turn to Galatians 3.26. I can find it. Okay, Galatians 3.26. It says we are all baptized in one faith, right? We're all baptized together. They're all one blood. That the Jew and the Gentile distinction is being broken down in Christ in the baptism, right? And so part of the role of the baptism, part of the role of John the Baptist is to be breaking, making smooth, right? Making uh, the way straight, making it clear. And so we get baptized in part to be a part of that oneness of the body so that there's harmony. There's harmony in the body. We are all in the body, different members in the body, different members have different offices, right? Your hand has a different role than your foot, but they're not different in glory. Your hand is not greater than your foot. You, it would be, it's, they're both incomprehensibly devastating to lose either, right? For, for you're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. There's all these promises in the Old Testament about Abraham's seed. And what we learn in Galatians is that that promise of Abraham's seed is given to us, the church. It's given to the elect of God. It's, it's that we are the promised seed. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. They asked, why baptizest thou then, if thou be not the Christ? I uh, baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me, it is preferred before me, whose shoes latch I am not worthy to unloose. The example of humility in the prophets. The example of pointing at the ultimate authority in the prophets. One thing you will learn, see today. And so everyone points at some ultimate authority, right? You have some conversation with someone, they appeal to something. They might appeal to evidence. They might appeal to logic. They might appeal to a book they read or an expert that they heard. Everyone's always appealing to authority. John is appealing to the lordship of God, of Christ. He is coming. There's one among you whom you know not, who's coming after me, preferred before me, whose shoes latch I'm not worthy to unloose. 
there's this saying in theology where, okay, so like in my work, if somebody understands the technology that they're using, it's because they're able to use it very well, right? If somebody understands a program, if you say someone understands a programming language, it's because they're very good at using it. In scripture, it's kind of the opposite. You don't understand scripture by using it. You understand scripture by standing under it, by being used of it, if that makes sense. Because in relationship to scripture, scripture is the one sort of aspect of our embodied reality where this is the word of God. I am not sent to command the word of God. The word of God commands me. And that ought to be our relationship with this document. And something that, I, I mean, I've been struggling with this over the last year. You know, you lose a brother to another denomination, right? And you go and you look at that denomination. You try to understand. You try to, like, get some sort of grasp on what maybe compelled this person to do that. And you start to realize that what happens is there's just a different authority being placed by the brother, right? I place the authority, or really the authority is placed on me in the word, right? Now... And so, and the most charitable view of the other person's theology is that they place the authority on the triune God. They say, well, I start my reasoning from this place of the triune God, and it ends me up in this other church. And I also think that I'm putting the authority in the triune God via his word. And so, but the difference is just that. It's, it's, a, it's a difference of argumentation and reasoning. And so I don't understand, you know, what compelled this brother to, uh, you know, adopt this different line of thinking. But we are brothers nonetheless, right? Why? Because of what I just read in Galatians. You're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And so that's what we have in common, and that's the shared common ground, and that's what we ought to focus It's really all you can focus on when you get to this level, right? When you're with another brother and you want to keep them in fellowship. So he says, I am not worthy to unloose this man's sandals. This, these things were done in Beth Thabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. One interesting thing I just recently learned about the Jordan River is that it's uh, exactly a marathon's run from Jerusalem, which is interesting because marathons come from Greece. So, it, again, God, like there's no accidents. He plans things out such that there will be all these beautiful little um, coincidences that you can kind of dive into and just take joy in and take you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And so when you see that the marathon appears both in Greece and in Jerusalem, away from Jordan, it kind of, it just confirms that there is a designer in charge of all these things. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I'm going to end. I I had much more to say here, but I'm going to probably end here because I think I'm running out of time. But uh, you know that I love revelation. God is the beginning and the end. John understood this better than anyone. So he wrote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But then he also wrote revelation, which is the story of the end. And he uses the same language in both books. And it's one of the ways that you can tell that it's authentic and genuinely written by the, the apostle John. And he says, the next day John seeth Jesus, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the word, or the world, the sin of the world. And in chapter 5 of Revelation, John writes this, 
And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. The numbers of completeness, seven. We all love the number seven because it's a number that represents completeness and holiness. The seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne and when he had taken the book the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors which are the prayers of the saints and they are sung they sung a new song saying thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to god By thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels. Actually, we need to go back because we just can't pass over that. And has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign in the what? The earth. In the earth we shall reign. This is the whole of scripture. It's the whole of scripture talking that God's plan was not a plan for our like for like the recesses of our minds. And and it is a plan for the recesses of our minds and the prayer closet. But it's, it's a plan for every square inch of creation. There is nothing that will not bow to this end game. And if we just, if we continue trying to relegate our, it's funny because the word religion, we've talked about this before, probably talked about everything. Religion, it means to be bound. Religionum. It means binding. It it is, everyone thinks, people think that there's, uh, that freedom is the absence of constraint, right? But that's not it. Liberty is being bound by the right things, by the true and noble and good things. We are free in Christ. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And in that liberty, we're made kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. It's just so there in the scripture from the beginning to the end. It's there. And we could, I mean, people ask, well, why do you believe this way? Why don't like guys, I just don't think that we are losing this battle. To me, it does not appear. And I think that this is in the scripture, unless I am being deceived greatly. But the scripture seems to show me that our Lord is a victorious Lord. We have victory in Jesus. We are not losing. This is not the end of the game where we just whimper out and have to be saved in some miracle. Like it's, it's miraculous in the sense that God has done this work in our hearts, but it's not magic. He doesn't just show up and snap his fingers back so that everything is good. He is working in the hearts of men. He's making these unredeemed redeemed. He's making us regenerate, and that regeneration in each and every one of us moves the world, the body, the body of Christ in the church moves the world to a more pure and perfect place. And amen? Right? Like, isn't that the story of Scripture? Am I missing it somewhere? That there's some, like, snapping of the fingers? Oh, like, it's weird. You know, the body of Christ, we're just going to, you know, it's going to, men will wax worse and worse. That's true. Men will wax worse and worse. But God, through God, all things are possible. And 
the whole of scripture attests to this. I can't get away from it. He has made us kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever good night that is the story of scripture that is the last book telling us that's the beginning of the last book telling us read the rest of the last book okay it's just so encouraging to know that it is that we serve a victorious Lord. We serve a reigning king. He is not an impotent king. He does not pray without purpose. He does not pray without ability. When he prays, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That that is not an ineffectual prayer. That is an effectual prayer. And that we are the agents of that. We are the instruments that he has chosen, that he has written on our hearts, the purpose of his kingdom, such that it would be made more perfect here on earth as it is in heaven. It's so straightforward and clear in the whole of scripture. Don't let it pass you by. Don't listen to the world. The world will tell you something different. Okay, especially the popular world of Christianity, which is hardly Christianity. Okay, Christianity is not whimpering and 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 kneeling over to some false idol. Christianity is, people always say it means Christ follower, but that's not exactly it. It, it, it was actually an insult. They threw it at, they call, it means like little Christ. They were saying, oh, you think you're, you know, because Christ is in us and we are in him, they think that you're little saviors. So you're going to be a little savior. That's what we're going to call you. And then what happened? That word, Christian, little Christ, became the label that we, that we use. Why? Because every symbol, every word, every aspect of creation will eventually point to Christ or be destroyed. There is no in-between. There will be nothing left untouched. There, will be no, there, is no neutral, there is no neutrality when it comes to God. It either bows or it's gone. What's the name of the Pharaoh who wouldn't obey God? What's his name? Does anyone know? No one knows. Because God has erased his name from the annals of history. He only exists as a lesson, in an object lesson in how not to, to be obedient to God. I, I'll just read one thing. It is the New Year's. We're talking about beginnings. We're talking about the hope that we have for this year. I'll just read this and, I, and, I, and I'll be done. This is from the last book, the last chapter of Isaiah. We've been in Mark 9. Mark 9, the last verse of Mark 9, quotes this chapter. It's, it's powerful. It's really powerful. There's a few things that he says here. He says in verse 7, She travailed and she brought forth before her pain came. She was delivered of a man-child. Who's that man-child? The man-child is our Lord. And all these things will happen, and they shall bring all of your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all the nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. Again, all things will bow, all things will worship our God, and I will take also of them for priests and for Levites, so all the Gentile nations, all the nations will be involved in this. It's no longer, there's no separation between Gentile and Jew. 
For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed, the seed of Abraham, and your name remain. So all these things tie together. So your seed and your name will remain and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth. That's all flesh. They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men, the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. And that's the end of the book of Isaiah folks, the absolute victory of our Lord, that all his enemies will be carcasses for an unending worm and an unquenchable fire. And we are on the winning side. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your word, Lord, for all the things that you've put in our hearts today, Lord, that I just pray that it would have been glorifying to you, Lord, that you would use this to move us, to mold us, to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who ought to be. And Lord, I pray is the sole object of our affection, the sole object of our attention, Lord, where we keep our minds, where we stand in this place of grace, Lord. I just beg of you that you be met, that your son be magnified in all this, Lord. Lord, make us good instruments in your hand, Lord. Forgive us for our sins. Lead us out of temptation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Two thoughts that I'd like to share with you. I appreciate Brother Danny's message. Um, In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do... Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ. And as we enter into a new year, I can't think of a better way to start a new year than worshiping the Lord. Uh, I'm thankful, as Brother Ben mentioned in his prayer, for the blessings and the deliverances that God has given us over this last year. God has been good to us. He's blessed us all. He has sustained us. And his brother Ben with confidence said in his prayer that God will continue to do so in the year to come. And we know that by the promises that God gives in his word. And so one of the one of the thoughts right here, a couple of thoughts in this verse is that for the past year, it's good to think and dwell on the blessings of God. But there's some things that we need to put behind us. And that's what he's talking about right here. He says, forgetting those things which are behind. But then he says, reaching forth unto those things which are before. And he tells us the best way to go forward. Some things we need to put behind. But starting the new year, folks make a variety of resolutions, a variety of commitments. Sometimes they're followed, sometimes they're not. But here's a real good tip in going forward in the new year, starting it off right now in the beginning of the year. And it's an evidence by your presence here today that you have a desire to do so. He said, reaching forth unto those things which are before us. And then here's the tip or the suggestion on how to go forward in the new year. He says, I press toward the mark. What is that mark? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. If we keep our focus set upon Jesus Christ as we move forward, it'll make a tremendous difference 
in the new year. We're still going to have difficulties. We're still going to have trials. We're still going to have hardships along the way. If we knew what all of those would be, it probably would overwhelm us at any given time. But we have the confidence of knowing that God has promised to be with us through all of our difficulties. And so he says, as we go forward, he says, you press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is that mark that we strive towards as we go forward. Now, I'm going to, my pastor used to say, I'm going to give you some homework. And here's the homework that I'll give you. I I was going to speak out of James chapter one. I'd like you to go home and read it. Great, great chapter. Great chapter. I'll just mention a few highlights of James chapter one that will be a blessing to you as you read. Read all the book of James, but especially chapter one. It's really, really good. It starts out and it talks about uh, our challenges, our difficulties. And then it comes down and it talks about the faith that we have in Christ. It talks about the patience we have in the Lord. And then it sums it up on the last verse, verse 27. And it says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. And he mentions three things right here. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Number one, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Number two, to keep himself unspotted from the world. Uh, Number one has two in it, the fatherless and the widows. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. And that's the summary of this chapter right here as you go through and read it. That final verse. So just going to touch on a few principal points that you might consider as you're reading James chapter one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. Then he starts out and he he says something that's strange. It's really strange. Nobody signs up for this. He says, My brethren, count it all joy. Now, you say, this is is hard to imagine. It's hard to comprehend. He says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. First of all, what he's not talking about right here is the temptations to sin. It's not talking about the different temptations that that Satan sends your way to sin. What it is talking about right here is the challenges that come your way in your life that either are sent by God or allowed by God. The trials that you experience in your life that come filtered through The sovereign pleasure of a holy God. Example, Grace and Jared. They're a perfect example of a trial that came in their life. Of a difficult time that came in their life. And I think that probably Grace and Jared would tell you that they learned a lot through that trial. And that they're closer to the Lord by the trial that they experienced 
than they were before that. I know that we as a church body are closer because as a church family, we prayed for them, we talked to them, we pulled for them, folks visited them. And that difficulty that was in their life brought the church family closer together. It brought your natural family closer together. There were folks that rallied around them, folks that took meals to them, that were helping them in this great difficulty that they had. And so the end result was that our faith was strengthened, that their patience, our patience was was uh, grew. And when we didn't know what to do or how to help or how to respond, then we went to the Lord and we asked the Lord. And that's what he's talking about right here. This is a wonderful example right here. He says, my brethren, count it all joy. Now, count it joy. I'm just confessing with you. That's just hard. It's just not. If you're looking at a ledger and you're putting it in a ledger and you're saying, well, I do count this joy and I don't count that joy, then I'd probably not put it in the ledger on the side where it says count it joy. Because at the time, it's not at all joyous. But what he's saying right here is that when this is completed or this is finished, then I want you to look at it and I want you to see that there were actually some ways that God blessed in this that you might not have experienced otherwise. So he says, brethren, I want you to count it joy. This is talking to folks just like us. And he says three things right here. He says, count it all joy when you fall into divers or various temptations. He's not talking about temptations of sin, but he's talking about the the various challenges that we experience in our life. Everybody here has them in our life. And then he says, he says, knowing this, that the trying two things right here. That the trying of your faith worketh patience. So, so someone that is not a child of God and has a trial like Grace and Jared had or a difficulty in their life. If they're not a child of God, it's actually going to drive them further away from the Lord. But you take somebody that they lean on the Lord and that the Lord is their strength and the Lord is their all in all. When they go through a trial, it actually brings them closer to the Lord. And so what he's saying right here, he says that the trying of your faith. First of all, if you have faith, that's an evidence that you are a child of God. If you have faith, then 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 you're a child of the king because you wouldn't have faith if you didn't have spiritual life. So if you have faith. And so what he's saying right here, that the trial of your faith. He says, here is a trial that's coming in our life. I don't want it. I didn't ask for it. I'd rather not have it. But he says that out of this trial, your faith is going to be strengthened. And then he says, as a result of your faith being strengthened, he says, it's actually going to work some patience. Remember Justin, Justin Huffman saying he prayed for patience and he said, Lord, would you give me patience and would you give it to me right now? Well, that just kind of doesn't work that way. What he's saying right here is your faith 
you begin to lean on the promises of God. You lean on the presence of the Lord. You lean on the strength of the Lord. And as a result, it begins to work a degree of patience. And you realize that God is in charge and God is in control. And then he says, for those of us that maybe our faith's a little bit weak, maybe our patience is a little bit short. He says, here's how you approach it right here. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect, entire, wanting nothing. And then he says, if there's any of you that lack wisdom, if you're lacking in knowing how to exercise your faith, if you're lacking in your patience, if you're lacking in being able to put it all together, if you're lacking in being able to figure it all out, he says, then you go to the Lord. And you ask the Lord for wisdom. Now, I always thought that this verse was talking about that in our daily activities, and certainly it is, it's not to be discounted at all, that if we need wisdom, we're to ask God who gives it liberally. But that's right here in the context of these challenges that come in our life. That we say, Lord, what would you have me to learn in this situation right here? Lord, how can I learn something that's going to make a difference to other people. How's it going to make a difference to my relationship with you? And, and, and what would you have me to learn in this? I'll cite this example and then I'll quit. I, I, here's, here's a, this is, uh, all of James is so, so, so very good. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll cite, cite this example, and this is how it ministered to me. So if, 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 if your faith is weak, if your patience is short, if you can't really figure it out, if you don't know what you're supposed to be learning through this trial, how you can help others and how you can benefit from it and how that you can go and then help somebody else, then he says you talk to the Lord and you ask the Lord for wisdom and he'll give it liberally and he won't upbraid you. He won't rebuke you for asking for wisdom on how to do it. I'll share this one example. Years ago, you all were very patient with me. I had my grandmother living in my home and had a great desire to help meet her needs. I thought that she would live there about six months. The doctor had told us she had six months to live. I took her to Johns Hopkins, got good doctors, and the Lord blessed. She lived eight and a half years in my home. The last two years, she was a complete invalid. She couldn't have turned over in bed if you'd have given her a million dollars. That's how frail that she actually was. Weighed about 78 or 80 pounds. I went on a preaching trip and I took her to a facility. She couldn't talk, couldn't communicate. You couldn't understand what she said. And I clearly told them before I left, I gave them the, um, I, I went over what she could eat. I said she has to have her food pureed and all this kind of stuff and, and went over a very detailed list. Before I got back from the preaching trip, she, uh, I got a phone call that she was in the hospital. Uh, somebody had given her meatballs to eat. She choked on a meatball, not supposed to have it, crushed her ribs. When I went to the hospital, couldn't even turn her over. To turn her over, it took like 20 minutes because she was in such pain. When I took her home, I took her home basically to die. She lived. I'll never forget. I prayed to the Lord and I said, Lord, what would you have me to learn out of this? 
lived out there on Davis Road, had the big front porch on the house. I took my Bible out and I sat on the front porch. She was in the hospital bed in tremendous pain. And this verse came to mind. It was for me. If it helps anybody else, praise God, but it was for me. But if any widows have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable for God. I remembered that Zach Guess had said that when it says nephews, that nephews is actually the interpretation for grandchildren. So the charge was not only to children, but it was to the grandchildren as well. That spoke to me personally. If any have widows or children, uh, grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety at home, kindness at home, and to requite. That verse just jumped off the page to me. You know what requite means? Requite means that you repay for what has been shown to you. Whatever your mother, your grandmother did for you, you've got to be willing to do for them. And I mean, that is everything, whatever it is. That verse jumped off the page to me. It says, let them learn first to show piety, kindness at home and to requite, meaning repay their parents. And then he said, for that is good and acceptable before God. May not have meant anything to anybody else, but I knew that that meant for me. So that was a trial that we were experiencing. I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't know what to learn from it. I prayed, God, give me wisdom. I went out on the front porch, sitting in a Cracker Barrel rocker, and that verse came to light, and I knew that it spoke to me. And it convicted me enough that I cared for my grandmother until the day she went home to be with the Lord. Because that verse right there. Grace and Jared are a great example of this. There's many, many others that you've experienced. If you've lived very long, brother and sister Farrington, 68 years together, you, I'm sure it's not all been a bed of roses. I'm sure there's difficulties and trials that they've learned throughout life. Yet God has been with them and sustained them. So the first part of this, when he's talking about trials, is talking about the difficulties in life. Then he comes down and he talks about the temptations of Satan. And he clearly says, let no man say when he's tempted that he's tempted of God. For God doesn't tempt man with evil. God abhors sin and he doesn't tempt man to sin. Read James. Real good chapter. Great chapter. It'll be a blessing to you if you'll do it. It's a great blessing.